and we're live or it uh cut in while i was saying and we're live but by now i think we are live hello welcome to dispatch live tuesday october 11th i'm adam o'neill executive editor of the dispatch and i'm joined by justin fritz chief operating officer of the dispatch justin um today what would you say it's is it your d-day is it your healthcare.gov? <laughs> what, what's the analogy that you've been going to, uh, to to explain what today and tomorrow mean to you? Uh, well, I certainly hope it's not healthcare.gov launch, um, though we, we have had our, our own uh, set of hiccups, as as can be expected. Um, we did as, as much planning as we could um, and are, are getting through it. Um, and everything seems to be to be really going well today on, on the back end. So mostly excited at this point to finally flip the switch later tonight and get us going now the people watching dispatch live these are some of our most dedicated members the people who tune in to hang out with us on a tuesday at 8 p.m um so they probably know that we are leaving substack we are launching our own new website but that is of course what you were alluding to if one of them somehow missed the emails or all the different notices and the morning dispatch and whatnot um so first i'll just say folks write in any questions you have about the transition and uh, what, what we're up to. If you have any concerns at all, let us know in the comment section and we'll get to that in a second. But first, Justin might answer some of those questions. So why don't we start with, why, uh, why are we breaking up with Substack? What, uh, why, are we, why are we leaving? Why are we making this change? That's, that's definitely the, probably the most common question that we get. Um, and a lot of people who saying, hey, you know, Substack's working great. Um, you know, why why are you leaving? Um, and I've been thinking about kind of different ways to explain that. Um, essentially, Substack is a really great platform for single editors, single creators, or very small media organizations, which is what we were when we started. Um, it's super simple. There's not a lot of things uh, for somebody on the business side to mess up can kind of hit publish, take payments very easily and get off and running. As you grow, uh, it becomes more complicated and we're really kind of running up against that one size fits all approach and trying to apply that to a, a bigger, kind of more robust, more dynamic media organization. And essentially what Substack has done helping us get to this point is uh, akin to duct tape <laughs> behind the scenes. So while it might look really wonderful to everybody that is interacting with us from uh, the reader, the member side, behind the scenes, we have taken a bunch of individual Substack newsletter publications and tied them all together under a dispatch brand. Um, and that's what's gotten us to this far. But it's also presented a lot of challenges in terms of standing up new new newsletters, new pieces of content, organizing in a way that we feel like makes sense to people, um, and then kind of exploring anything else beyond that. If we want to add a new feature um, to, to the site or just something that we do, we'd have to ask Substack and they have to weigh that against, well, does anybody else want that or would we just be building this for the dispatch? And so that's the point we're at now where um, anything that we want to do like that in the future, we feel like it's better to do it on our own platform. Um, and that's what brought us here today. Um, that along with about a year's worth of work and planning uh, to get to get to tonight. Yeah. And having only seen the past month and a half, two months of that planning, I can only imagine how much work that was because I just saw, you know, one sixth of it. Um, now, 
I know most users are not as excited about the CMS, the content management system, or the internal workings of a, a news publication as you and I might be. What they really want to know is, what do I expect? What What's going to happen tomorrow? How do I log in, set email preferences, find email, that sort of thing? Why, do, why don't you kind of take them through on their end what they should be expecting? Yeah. So, um the dispatch.com will not change uh, later tonight. That will point from our Substack backend to, to the new website. It looks very similar to what the Substack page looks like today, if you go in there. Um, and for the first time to sign in, at the top right-hand corner, there will be a place to sign in. And when you click that, it'll prompt you to enter your email address. You'll add the same email address that you are signed up for with, with the dispatch now. And that will relay a, a magic link, very similar to the way Substack has been doing sign-ins um, from the get-go to your inbox. Uh, you'll click that and you will be signed in on that browser, on that device for up to a year, um, unless you, you know, reload it, change you know, operating systems or, or switch to a different device. Um, there have been a few people that have asked, you know, can I, can I set a password? Yes, once you've done that, you'll be able to go into your account settings that sign-in button at the top right-hand corner will switch to accounts, and you'll be able to manage um, account preferences, including setting a password from there. So is it is it safe to say, essentially, for the user, you'll start to see benefits in the coming months, and we can talk about that in a second about from the changes, but as far as tomorrow goes, it's just going to be a little sign-in, uh, but that's we're really not asking that much uh, of, of folks on the other end uh, who have been consuming our content. Is that, is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And and if you are somebody who just consumes the newsletter content in your inbox, you don't have to do a thing. All of those will continue coming um, tomorrow as they have. Uh, I will add a really important step in, in switching over for us is we are also switching our email provider. Um, and that comes with this whole host of, of work that has to be done to warm up uh, a new email server. Basically, to not get too technical, um, you know, when email was launched, spam companies would spin up a new email account daily so that they would constantly land in your inbox and, you know, spam you that way. So most of the clients adapted um, a, a process where they look at senders really critically when a new account is set up. Um, and if you scale up too quickly or, or have too many uh, low open rates, they'll knock you back down to spam. Uh, I would say it's expected anytime you set up a new email service, uh, no matter how well you do the warm-up process, some of that ends up in spam. So uh, anybody listening along, uh, we've said it a number of times, we'll kind of continue to repeat it uh, on social and, and in emails we send. Uh, if you find us in your spam box, uh, just drag it. Um, if you're a Gmail user into primary um, or add us to your contacts list. Um, and we've also linked in a number of areas uh, depending on your email client, how to get that uh, showing up in your primary inbox. The address that all of their email will come from now is hello at the dispatch. And we'll have different from names for individual newsletters. I did see a few questions about how do I sort the newsletters uh, if I've previously been doing it on email level. French press will come from David French, but it will be mailed by hello at the dispatch. And you would just filter by email from David French. Great. Now, and what's, so there might be a little bit of changing the spam box or signing in on the website if that's how you prefer, but 
what are the upsides? I mean, what, what are we excited about and what do you think fans, members of the dispatch should be excited about? Maybe not tomorrow, but in the coming months, now that we have this, this new tech and we can roll out uh, these new features we couldn't get before. I'm excited about some clarity in the in the data on the back end. Um, things not mismatching uh, like they have been, but I don't think any of our users really care about that. Um, so, you know, from we said in some of our launch comms, um, if you know this site goes live later tonight and you log in and go, I don't, I don't get it. Like, why all this work um, for something that looks and functions very similarly? That's expected. We wanted to. Um, ruffle as little feathers along the way um, and take, you know, any future feature developments really seriously and thought through um, to make sure that it's something that is broadly um, applicable to everyone. It's something that we can easily do and feel like it's worthwhile. One of the things I'm most excited about is a much easier way to manage newsletter preferences. So uh, from the menu, you'll be able to go to a newsletter page that shows you the list of everything that we offer. And you'll be able to e easily click um, subscribe or unsubscribe to those. Previously, that was hidden under an accounts page and uh, Substack sometimes turned off your newsletters if you happen to open an app, um, happen to open their app. So we'll have much better control over that, um, especially when new folks are signing on for this first time. You won't be prompted to uh, stay signed in and subscribe to every newsletter. You'll have more of an option from the get-go to understand what they are and how to sign up for them. And that's particularly exciting. I don't have any news for that on, on this front yet, but um, we will be adding more newsletters in the future. We've been talking about this, you know, since before I took this job, things we can do. And I'm particularly excited about that aspect and also people being able to easily sign up for them. Um, so we can get into a couple questions first, but here we have uh, Dave Moody who wants to know if there are plans for a mobile app. That is, uh, from what we've seen, the second most common question to why are you leaving? Um, I would say, can we get this site launched tonight first um, and then follow up quickly and say, uh, yes, we, we are dreaming of an app um, and as, as quickly as we can kind of have this set, uh, this new site up and running smoothly, uh, we will start working on what that looks like and how to bring it um, as part of our, our membership offering. And as with the site, uh, the approach we would take in it with an app is simplicity. Um, my view is that there's nothing amazing that we will ever build on the tech side. We're not a tech company. Um, our core product is, is the writing and the content that we produce and things like Dispatch Live. So we will try to make sure that the tech always stays in the background for that and puts the rest of that uh, front and center. Yeah, I think um, when we were in one of our Slack threads about this, I asked about a particular feature and you're like, maybe that will be the eighth generation of the website when we can get to that, Adam. So hold, hold your horses. But I, I should also mention, uh, before I forget, um, Kevin Williamson, who will be on Dispatch Live today. Uh, you can hear his uh, thoughts about different things in a, in a few minutes here. But also Nick, uh, also known as All Abundant, their newsletters will actually start to come as emails after we make the switch. So they will be proper newsletter writers. For those of you who, who may may not have seen the stuff they've been writing on our site, which has been fantastic, we've been waiting to, to make the switch. So you'll be able, if you're if you prefer to get an email, you'll be able to get those uh, two all-star contributors um, that way. Um, yes, and you'll. I'll just add that you. Um, 
we will be starting those with with fresh lists. So uh, you'll have to go in and sign up for that on the newsletter page. Um, and that's how you'll you'll start getting those. Great. And uh, here we have another question from uh, Gary McClellan. And I guess you can choose whether or not you want to or whether you want to answer this one. But when are when are they flipping the switch so we can stress test it? He wants to know. I don't know if I don't know if we want to let the I don't know if we want to be stress tested. I, I'm not even sure I really understand the question. You're you're the, uh, the tech guy here, so you can maybe make the, the executive call on this one. Yeah, um, I will say we're we're doing it sometime while many people are asleep tonight. Uh, so when you wake up tomorrow morning, uh, maybe you give it a go then. Uh, Aileen Wright wants to know how will the new site handle notifications for likes and replies to comments. Um, right now we have those turned off, uh, but we will have that kind of as a, a fast follow once we've got that all up and running, um, that you'll be able to go in and customize those, um, to get replies for any number of things. Um, but that's something in general, customization of notifications is something we're excited that we'll have a little bit more flexibility around. Um, maybe we want to offer, you know, the ability only to have a reply when a staff member replies to your comment and you don't care about uh, everybody else that, that's replying to your comment. So we'll be able to do a few things like that, hopefully in the future. Um, comments are coming over. Uh, that was a question we saw on the FAQ page. Would, would old comments be migrated over? So the answer to that is, is yes. Um, avatars will be coming over as well. Um, that is going to take a little bit longer. Um, think the development team quoted that it takes about three seconds per avatar to come over. So when you think about all of the um, thousands and thousands of commenters that we have, it's going to take a, a little over a week for the, all of those to migrate over fully. Fantastic. Uh, I have to say, I uh, worked in a few newsrooms in my career, and uh, there are a lot of comment sections that I would have left in the past and just forgotten about. But the dispatch is one of the top tier commenter groups uh, of any publication I've read. So I'm glad to know that that's not going away. There's a couple a couple more quick questions and I'll let, let you go. I know it's a, got a lot going on. Uh, Patrick Leach asks, will the Substack voiceover feature be recreated? So not at launch, um, but that's something that we are actively looking into. And if you head over to our FAQ page, we'll share that in um, the comments section here, uh, as well as it's on the site. Uh, one of the questions answers that directly and has a link to a survey. So um, like all new features that we, we hope to build, we want to start with understanding a lot of the basics of how users and, and members want those to work. And so that is a chance to provide us some feedback there of what you'd like to see in the future. Uh, and we'll work quickly on, on building that as well. And last one here, John Stryker says, what about RSS feeds? Similar uh, fast follow uh, to launch. So those will be something that, um, so we're using WordPress uh, as our sort of content management system backend. And that makes it very easy to do RSS feeds for any number of things. Previously, we just had one for all content published on the, the dispatch. Um, we'll be able to fine tune that to topics, eventually to authors, and provide a lot of flexibility there. Great. Well, do you have any final thoughts or anything else you want to send to our uh, dear listeners or our, our viewers? I guess uh, just to say thank you to everyone for, for the patience. We've tried to make this um, seamless. We know there was a bit of a hiccup with 
membership access last night that Substack uh, was able to restore this morning. So um, thanks for hanging in there with us. Um, we promise not to change too many things too quickly um, and keep the, the ideas and the requests for um, new features coming and, and we'll take those, thoughtfully evaluate them as they come in. Awesome. Thank, thanks, Justin. Thanks for dropping yep. by. All right. See you later. Tonight. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, uh, would the uh, other uh, panelists like to join? <laughs> or, uh, now we can uh, get to the fun part. Uh, not that Justin's presentation. That was riveting television. Yeah, I enjoyed it, uh, and because uh, it, it answered some questions that I had, but I was afraid to ask, so it made me look a little better. Uh, getting uh, you know our, our great great uh, members here to ask. Uh, well, anyway, let's get into it. We have a, a few different things to to jump on, but I thought we could start by talking about Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, first elected in 2014. A few days ago, news broke that. Barring some surprise, he's going to be leaving the Senate. Uh, he'd just been reelected in 2020. He was going to be there through 2027, but he's going to be leaving to join the University of Florida as their president. Um, he, he was an interesting character uh, in his time in his six or I guess eight years in the Senate. Um, not exactly a legislative heavyweight but known for his vocal criticism of Trump, voted to convict after the January 6th events when that impeachment came around. Um, he told a national reporter this after the news broke, Nebraskans have well understood that I didn't expect to be in politics as a lifelong calling. I need to get back to building stuff. And he said he thinks that University of Florida is the place to build things. Uh, we could talk a little bit about in a minute about the reception he's been getting at the University of Florida, uh, but Kevin, what is the Senate or the country losing when they lose Senator Sass, or or are they losing something when when he goes away? What what's the what's the real effect of him walking away from the Senate like this? Well, sure, Sass Sass was the good one, so uh, that's that, that's what they've lost. I don't think there's really a, a good one anymore. So you know, Sass, who I've, I've talked to a little bit off and on over the years. Um, I don't think was ever entirely sold on being in the Senate. Uh, he's not the sort of person who needs to be in elected office. There's a lot of other things he can do with his life. And I think he's decided to go ahead and do one of those things. Um, not that I have any reason to believe that this is some sort of prelude to a presidential campaign. And I always tell people that we, and we concentrate too much on the presidency, but I, I will note for the record that we've had, you know, two kind of important presidents who were former university presidents uh, one was Woodrow Wilson, who was pretty much the worst, and the other one was Dwight Eisenhower, who was pretty much the best. So, uh, you know, going to uh, to a university can uh, can affect one's uh, career in, in in various different kinds of ways. But yes, yeah, Sass was one of the last kind of you know serious people in the Senate. I think um, he was someone who wasn't there to you know just do sort of grandstanding nonsense on C-SPAN and all the rest of it. He is one of the uh, smartest guys in the Senate, certainly, and uh, one of the best spoken, one of the best uh, expositors of what's good about the American constitutional order and why it should be defended. And I think that he will be missed. And while I don't blame him for leaving the Senate, one hates to see the institution ceded to the likes of, say, Lindsey Graham. 
Jonah, let, let's talk a little more about what, what Kevin was saying about him being one of the good ones. And I think he certainly did say the right things. He, For the record, uh, I didn't say one of the good ones. Oh, oh the good one. Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, him being the good one. But um, and I, I'm sort of skeptical generally of measurements like this where they're saying who is the most effective senator. And, but there is some calculus involving in legislation you're able to pass, amendments you could get through. Uh, and you can debate whether those are good or bad, but SAS was never really uh, a guy introducing tons of legislation or working in the process. Is that that's one criticism that I frequently hear of him? Is that yes, he writes interesting books and he makes he he gives good speeches, but guy didn't get a lot done legislatively while he was a legislator. Is that a fair criticism, or is that just beside the point? No, I th- I think it's a fair criticism, particularly and and I should do this full disclosure thing. Uh, I, I try very hard not to become friends with politicians, um, in large part because, you know, my standard line about this is that you should, for someone in my line of work, they're kind of like, it's kind of like lab researchers making friend, getting too close to their test animals, right? It's much easier to stick the needle in, in test subject 47B than fluffy. And the second you start getting friendly with politicians, you start it's, it, it'd be corrupting, but there are a handful of them that I've become friendly with. Ben Sass was one. The remnant was originally supposed to be essentially co-hosted between Jonah Goldberg and Ben Sass. So uh, all those disclaimers, you know, whatever. But I think it's a fair criticism in part because there was probably, and I think there are more good senators. I would say there are almost, almost three times as many good senators as Kevin suggests. Um, but uh, Almost. Almost. Two and a half times as many good senators as Kevin suggests. Who would that be? Josh Hawley? Uh, who's the other one? Uh. No, look, I, look Mitt, I think Mitt Romney is an honorable man, and I think he's trying to do good things. Um, uh, but one of the things that Sass was particularly good at, maybe better than anybody else in Congress um, in a long time, is articulating how Congress wasn't doing its job. He was smart about it. He was insightful about it. I got to say, if you want one of the best civics lessons a senator has ever given, listen to the first seven minutes statement that Sass gave in the Kavanaugh hearings. It's just fantastic. Um, and so when you're so right about that criticism and then you're not doing a lot of legislating, it's a problem because his whole critique is that Congress wasn't legislating. It wasn't leading. Um and I know, and he has answers to it. He says he was really focused on national security stuff. He has problems with the, the inability to get stuff done, which I'm sure he's right about. But at the end of the day, he was a little bit like one of his heroes, Pat Moynihan, who was the most intellectual senator, but kind of didn't live up to it as a, as a legislator. Um, although I think Moynihan has a much better record as a legislator than that says does. Um, so I think it's fair. It's fair. I just don't think it's the totality of the man. Now, the the next question is going to be, what is he going to do at the University of Florida? He was previously a university president, uh, although I think that university had about 1,400 students, whereas this new job, he's going to be in charge of a 50,000 student institution. Um, Sarah, you have a little bit of experience being someone who's worked for Republicans, been in the on the right, and also now interacts with college students from time to time. Uh, and so I, I wonder if this... <laughs> I wonder if this at all sounds familiar. Here's a here's the the lead to a story from the Gainesville Sun. 
In his first visit to campus as the sole finalist to be University of Florida president, U.S. Senator Ben Sass faced questions Monday on his conservative political positions. Da M dash. Along with the protest that disrupted a question and answer session and ended with him speeding off in a police vehicle. Um, the <laughs> protest, uh, which is it's like Kevin leaving the Atlantic. Yes. Yeah, so, so not at all surprising, but you're still kind of shocked a little bit to read it. Um, there was a, also not surprising. One of the chants was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Ben Sass has got to go. Um, and uh, Sarah, I'm curious, what, what do you think? Um, you know, one of the other things that Sass has talked about in leaving is saying in, that he talked about in his career while he's still in the Senate was the universities need to be fixed. Conservatives shouldn't be shy about that. Is, is this a is this a pointless struggle or is there something he can do there or is this just going to be years and years of running into police cars and speeding away from angry mobs? Uh, I would suggest that if it's going to be the latter, he probably shouldn't take this job because the reasons that I think he's taking it are to sort of take the baton from Mitch Daniels at Purdue, you know, Declan Garvey and I actually co-wrote um, a long form piece for Deseret News Magazine about Ben Sass's vision for higher ed. And we talked to the Arizona uh, State University president and Mitch Daniels at Purdue, two people who Sass cited as like his sort of intellectual examples of university presidents who were uh, trying new things. What I found really surprising about that conversation I guess I was expecting Ben Sass to kind of, you know, in a more intellectually honest way, maybe uh, in a more fun way, but basically make the argument that it's administrative bloat. You know, there's three times as many diversity, equity and inclusion staffers as there are history professors at X university. And in fact, that's not at all the argument that he was making. Um, he's like, tuition is going up. For totally different reasons than that. Like, does that help? No, it doesn't, frankly. But um, it's not driving the tuition increases that we've seen over the last 20 years. And even there, he wasn't that interested in talking about the tuition side of this, which again is such a like big talking point on the, the right in a lot of ways. Instead, it was far more about how you take the current model of a university and disrupt that model so that it can reach different students more interesting students, prepare students better, have more transparency in what students are signing up for. And in that sense, I'm not surprised at all that he wanted to go to Florida because you can't do that. That's not fair. You can't do it at scale at the sort of small university. He was at Midland, um, Midland University uh, in Nebraska, like you mentioned, a very small liberal arts university. And he did do some interesting things there, but like with so few students, um, I think 400, like one third of the class or so at Midland um, were uh, like continuing students, basically had come back, uh, had had jobs, things like that, non-traditional students. And he seemed really interested in that part of it. Like maybe you do two years on campus, but then two years for online learning, or maybe there's just a lot more sort of radical transparency in the uh, salaries of people who graduate with this major, just all sorts of sort of different models for learning and interacting with the college experience. So in that sense, I think University of Florida is a great fit because they're really interested in doing that stuff. 
as far as the students, it appears to me that the most of the objections are frankly unimpressive, pretty superficial. They're all about comments Ben Sass has made on gay marriage, LGBTQ stuff. And I say superficial not because that area is superficial in any way, but frankly, these students saw like one thing Ben Sass has ever said don't seem particularly interested in any of his ideas on how to be a university president and what that means to him. It'd be one thing if he was coming in and was like, you know what I'm going to do is ban all homosexual relationships at the university of Florida. He is deeply uninterested in politics. And anyone who's followed his career would know that Yeah, uh, he wanted to be a Senator, like a Roman Senator, and then showed up at the U S Senate and was like, bummer. They don't do that here. So I think these students should hold their horses. I think there will be plenty of things for them to protest about potentially. And what Ben Sass actually wants to do, go get mad about those things. Get less mad about the fact that a Republican um, is going to be your university president. I think a lot of Purdue students would tell you that they loved having Mitch Daniels as president, even if they don't agree with his stuff, because he kept tuition, not just the same, but in real dollars, it went down over the course of 11 years. And that allowed a lot of students to go to college who maybe otherwise wouldn't have. And I think that that's very interesting to me. We have some people in Florida reminding us of why the word sophomoric exists. That's that's actually a better (laughs) word than simplistic. It's just sophomoric right now. If he does something, let me know. But, you know, finding some line you don't like, like, okay. Maybe they'll proceed to juniorific. That was the, the interesting part in the, the Gainesville Sun piece about this was, like you said, it was about gay marriage, whether he believed in climate change. Uh, and then there was one objection about he'd made some comment about tenure and wanting to make sure that tenured professors, you know, still worked. Or, or And uh, that was about it uh, in terms of what was brought up. But it will be interesting to see uh, whether um, Mitch Daniels and Sass end up together in the uh, former university president, reasonable Republican political lane, uh, battling to to the death against each other for, for that huge spot in the GOP primary. Although I may have my, my doubts about how, how big of a, a lane that is, but that's, uh, that's certainly going to be something to, to think about. Now, before we move on to, to talk about the midterms, um, one, one uh, commenter wants to know, does this mean we can expect more appearances by Ben Sass on the remnant? The invitation has gone out. We shall see. I think he's got he's got a lot of stuff on his plate right now. I'm sure he's watching um, Dispatch Live. It's quite a uh, you know, Jonah, he is, audience. He is moving to the second best Gainesville, so he's going to have a very you know. <laughs> By the way, Jonah, I, uh, I would seriously listen to an entire remnant with Ben. That's just on parenting advice. He has. I think it's an underutilized part of Ben Sass. He has had as much as he is a non-traditional university president aspirant. Uh, he's a pretty non-traditional parent too. They sort of half homeschool, half have their kids in school. The kids constantly travel with him. They sit in the back of really boring speeches, but they also get to do a bunch of hands-on interesting stuff. I don't know. I find him to be a fascinating creature. I also, the fact that he has the kids settle disagreements by trials by combat is really interesting. It's interesting, right? I mean, yeah, it's why he yeah. has quite a few. I think he's sort of leaving some room for that to end poorly. Exactly. But he campaigned with us on the Carly Fiorina campaign for 48 hours. Uh, We went to Nebraska. And so he was on the road with us and there was a kid with us the whole time. 
And, you know, if he doesn't... One of his own. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't check any paperwork, honestly. The kid didn't look a lot like him. I mean, to her credit, you know, you want the girls to look like mom. Well, speaking of kidnapping children, uh, let's go to the midterms. (laughs) And a perfect segue to opposition research. The first thing I wanted to ask you about, Sarah, um, we've been talking about this and you've been saying a lot of very interesting things to our, our staffers about how to destroy people with opposition. <laughs> You're, you seem to really have a real bloodlust for it. It's kind of a little bit terrifying to be your colleague, but you're, you're great. You're the best. Uh, I have no complaints about you and I only say nice things about you to everyone. Um, so, you know, keep that oppo file tucked away as long as uh, hopefully forever. But uh, on, a, on a more serious note, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty earnest observer of American politics, but geez, the month of October, there sure are a lot of abortion pay fors, fake military records, people wearing blackface. For some reason, it's all happening now. Can can you kind of just as someone who, who has some experience, um, you know, not hopefully not with any of that stuff, but with finding out about that stuff, can you kind of take take the the viewers through how how does that work? You know, like kind of an insider view of how do you get, how do you get the oppo? How do you, how do you effectively deploy it? And maybe as a voter, how can you look at it more intelligently and wonder, is this person being coached? Is this a real authentic accusation? That sort of thing. Yeah. So really, let me just talk at the presidential level for a second, because it'll probably interest people a little more. There's a lot more resources for opposition research at the presidential level. At this point, in if the Democrats were going to have an open primary, for instance, um, and probably even given now where they're not sure whether there's going to be an open primary, uh, the Republican National Committee would already have opposition research binders on every potential candidate. Now, some of those binders are going to be thicker than others. The binder on Vice President Harris um, would be the thickest at this point, aside from President Biden himself. And what's going to be included in that? right now at the sort of early stage is the really easy stuff. Everything they've ever said on every issue. You think of oppo research as like, aha, you were sleeping with so-and-so. But at the very beginning, it's actually just all the things they've said. So you know where they are on every issue and you want to sort of have that record. Have they ever um, said it differently? Um, That's the Mitt Romney oppo binder, right? Where he's attacked as a flip-flopper. Those were opposition research binders put together by Republicans, of course. Uh, There's oppo binders that are friendly fire too. Um, So after you get all those like issue statements, the person has taken. So every vote, if they've ever been a legislator, if they were a mayor, you're going to go through all the city council measures, votes like that. It's just really time-consuming, detailed stuff. Then, and that's more what I specialize in, by the way, was specialized past tense in, um, votes, financial records. I'm going to go to the local county courthouse of everywhere they've ever lived, look for any liens, tax stuff, property that they own that we didn't know about. Um, You know, they're a slumlord, it turns out, or they have partial ownership in some slummy property. Um, I mean, there's like oil leases in Texas and stuff that you want to know that people inherited and they sometimes don't even know they have it. All of that. More elevators in San Diego, speaking of Mitt Romney. (laughs) That's right. Um, Yeah, I mean, you can get the, the plans if they had to get uh, approval by their city, for instance, to change stuff at their house, all of that, like, yep, just give it all to me and let me see if there's anything interesting there. Um, And then there's flying out to places like 
for instance, going to get those yearbooks. Um, if you can find them, you want them. You just never know what could be in them. Like for instance, that they participated in a slave auction uh, where senior students were auctioning or buying freshmen to do uh, slave labor for them. You know, like, yep, that's fair game in an oppo thing. What opposition research binders that we're talking about that are put together by operatives generally are not is the sex stuff. <laughs> the sex stuff generally comes to you um, because there's nowhere to go, right? You're not going to the courthouse. Uh, aside from maybe some divorce records, if you could get your hands on those, whether through a public records request or something, you know, we saw the oppo hit on the, um, she's running for Congress. I forget in which state black female military record. And they got her military records that showed uh, she had complained about sexual assault and they got the details of her sexual right. assault complaint and outed her as a sexual assault victim. Um, that was a, a federal records request that they made. I don't know that the military should have turned that over under federal records request, but we don't quite know what they got. Uh, and it looks like they did get that from an opposition research firm, not from the campaign itself. So anyway, there's all of that stuff. But the sex stuff, and I'm thinking here of Herschel Walker, that to me does look like potentially she is working with someone who has worked in campaigns before and knows about timing, knows about sort of dripping stuff out slowly. You want to like think of it like a balloon. You want to keep popping the balloon up in the air. You don't want to let it touch the ground, let the story die. Now, that can mean that it's not true. You can question her credibility because of that but could also mean that it is true and she's just getting advice on how to keep that story alive uh, to most damage the campaign. So anyway, that's like some fun background on Oppo. No, um, but there are, I mean, there are specialists, right? I mean, who, I mean, maybe don't come in like with, with Tom Hagen and to take the picture of the dead hooker with Senator Geary, but like there are people who specialize in, finding that stuff too. I'm sure you would have nothing to do with something. But so I've never worked with those people, like even in like sort of the, the world that I work in, like three layers out, everyone I know does re deep record stuff. In theory, yeah. you could hire someone who like can go knock on a bunch of doors, but you still have to have somewhere to start. And then if you're caught sort of knocking on door, I mean, it could backfire mm -hmm. as much as it could go the other way. I think most of those start with a phone call the like incoming phone call of like, right, hey, did right. you know? Sounds like a business opportunity in there somewhere. Sounds like an underserved aspect <laughs> of the market. <laughs> well, you can call it Fusion GPS. <laughs> right. Good. Good. I mean, that's a good example, right? Like the Steel dossier was like that part of the Steel dossier about the hookers in Russia and the PP tape. Um, that was rumor. Like he didn't actually ever go trace that down. He heard it from someone. Mm -hmm. He put it in the steel dossier. That's actually a pretty good example of like, yep, someone called him and told him that. So we wrote it down. Do this is a question that came through the the, the transom from Paul Zimmerman. Do, do October surprises nowadays work like they used to? And I would add, did they ever work? Um, or does it depend on the candidate? I, when you're when you're pulling stuff together, do you ever look at it and you're like? Oh yeah, this is going to sink the guy. Or is it kind of just you throw it out and see what sticks? So there's two big times. One is right after the primary. If you've got good stuff, think of it. Um, 
something that Barack Obama did incredibly successfully in 2012 was put that ad blitz out as soon as Mitt Romney was clearly the nominee before he had control over the party money once he was the nominee, like officially the nominee. So there was that sort of interim period, May, June, and they just blitzed airways with like, this guy is rich and out of touch and all that. So think of that as one main oppo drop time. Also, the person just got through a bruising primary and you're like, oh yeah, and by the way, um, you know, they're an abortion doctor. You know, they perform all these abortions themselves. That's a good time. And then, yeah, I mean, you want it when voters are about to go vote. The problem with October is that early voting starts in a lot of places. People already um, are pretty baked. So I'm surprised things aren't moving up to September a little more than they are. But man, this week was like oppo drop week. Baked now, baked. But is it the question whether they work? I mean, like, it doesn't seem to be working the way you would have expected 10 years ago against Herschel Walker. you know, the Access Hollywood tape didn't work the way you would think. I mean, I think it's because Trump was already fairly inoculated um, from those kinds of things. But like, you know, I, I'm not one who never necessarily tell takes what Ralph Reed says in the New York Times at face value. But he says, you know, he thinks that the Herschel Walker stuff could cause the base to turn out in bigger numbers to rally around Herschel Walker in the face of this outrageous attack, yada, 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 yada. I don't think that's implausible. Um, I'm just not sure it's going to happen. But, like, do people care about October surprises anymore? Or are people just so partisan that that they're... I mean, if you listen to the, the defenders of Herschel Walker, a lot of them are telling on themselves when they basically say, I just want the seat in the Senate. So October surprises don't matter to them anymore because they don't actually care about the character of the person they're electing. They care about the sort of normative or the nominal vote in the Senate. Yeah. I mean, again, you think of like the big October surprises, this one, the access Hollywood tape. I think there's a question over whether they are enough, but most is like John Fetterman released the guy who murdered the elderly woman type stuff. That's oppo. It's not October surprise oppo, but yeah, that stuff's incredibly effective. Negative ads work. Every voter will tell you they don't, Mm -hmm. and they absolutely do. October surprises, I think it depends on a whole bunch of stuff. I think if this October surprise had happened to Blake Masters, I think it would have been crushing. But I think that Herschel Walker was already inoculated to a large extent. And you see, you know, right, Herschel Walker, no one is really shocked. I, I hope no one is shocked that he paid for an abortion and sent the lady a card, uh, it, apparently, according to the oppo. he's uh, a gentleman. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm not a card. I was, I was in CVS the other day, and I was looking for the abortion card section there in, the, in the Hallmark thing, and I just, I was not able to find one. No, I mean, where we live, but... For her, uh, for her birthday, my my fiance. The first time we were together, I gave her a uh, like congratulations on your pregnancy card, uh, and I mailed it to her house and her parents as a joke because I knew her parents would see it. Uh, she did not think that was very funny, uh, but <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious. She she was more concerned about that than I was, but. Um, kind of had to be there kind of joke right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't understand that your parents would see it. And yeah, she, she wasn't thrilled about that. But they make said, congratulations on your pregnancy cards, I guess, for like baby showers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the card actually said congratulations on your pregnancy. Um, that's, yeah, uh, yeah. people don't 
speak that way as, as normal people don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe journalists, you know, our kind of people do. Um, yeah, our kind of people definitely do. <laughs> the other, the other thing I want to talk about in in the midterms with you guys is the debates. This is kind of a, a heavy debate week. JD Vance and Tim Ryan. There are some clips floating around. Herschel Walker. That's going to be an interesting one on Friday. I think that the, uh, I think the uh, Fetterman Oz debate is about three hours before the polls closed, they finally agreed to do one, something like that. Um, what in on a similar vein, there's a kind of a debate and I've been ambivalent about this as long as I've thought about it is do debates really matter? Does it matter if you can deliver your talking points in uh, a friendlier way than the other guy can, or is it important to be able to think on your feet? And in Fetterman's case to demonstrate basic, cognitive abilities that you might require as a senator. Curious, you know, open it up to everyone. Maybe maybe Kevin wants to, to jump in on this. Kevin, what, what do you think? Do you think, one, debates are useful? And two, do you think they're meaningful to changing the outcome of an election? Yeah, I have my doubts about that. You know, when I think about these, these sorts of questions, I think I've been doing opinion journalism for a long time. And as far as I know, the only time I've ever changed anyone's opinion about something was that I changed uh, Rick Unger's mind about fracking. And so I've got I've got one win, uh, you know, in all that time. I don't think debates really typically change people's minds. And if they do, it's sort of only negatively. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a New York Times uh, theater review. It's not going to help you sell tickets, but it can destroy your reputation. And uh, I think that people uh, occasionally will perform so extraordinarily poorly in a debate that it actually does hurt them but I don't think you have much opportunity to help yourself in a debate. Um, I don't really understand. Well, I don't understand politicians as a class of human beings, but that's a a larger uh, discussion. But um, I don't understand why any politician who is not desperately behind in his race ever agrees to a debate in the first place when it's pretty much all downside Um, in in much the same way. I don't understand why they talk to reporters. I mean, I'm glad they do because it'd be hard to do our jobs if they, if they didn't, but if I were uh, you know, running for president, I'd never return a phone call from the New York Times. I wouldn't do a debate on any television station. And I would just, you know, keep doing my thing on uh, on social media and direct communication and other sorts of things. So and welcome like, to 2024. That is what every campaign tells me their plan is. Yeah, I imagine. it is. <laughs> um, well, you know, if, if there's one thing that, that Donald Trump really did um, demonstrate, I think, to everyone's satisfaction is that, that Twitter works, right? If you're the right kind of campaign and you're you're running this sort of you know, populist campaign in a populist moment, um, you don't need to talk to the Washington Post uh, when you can go direct to your people and when you're not trying to change minds also. And that's a big part of why debates, I think, don't really work very well at this moment, because we're not really trying to change people's minds. We're just trying to bring out the base and debates aren't really the best way to rile people up typically. But for one interesting tidbit that's coming out in 2022, at least which is this idea that there are some voters who are going to split their ticket. They're voting for Kemp, for instance, in Georgia, and they're planning to vote for Warnock in the Senate race. To the extent that's 3%, maybe even 4% of the electorate in Georgia, that's incredibly high. Um, And I think that it depends on the race. You know, if it's a base election, everything Kevin said is spot on. But if you're running in a race where 4% of the electorate's willing to shift around a little, um, then some of the other things do become more important. Sarah, do you think there's a similar dynamic in Pennsylvania? That's interesting to me because obviously we do see a difference in right. the polls at the top and bottom. 
But you also see a difference in the undecided vote as well. And so it's a little hard to say right now until we actually have the numbers on election day, how many of those people just aren't going to vote in one of the two races um, versus voting in both and voting differently. But I mean, yeah, we see and certainly in states like um, New Hampshire, for instance, where you have a Republican governor and a Democratic senator there, we absolutely see incumbent ticket splitting where it's far more unlikely is Pennsylvania, Georgia. Well, Georgia is an incumbent, um, but Pennsylvania, where you have two open seats and the potential for ticket splitting. That one's fascinating to me. I was interested to see that in Pennsylvania, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate has a larger lead than the Republican does in Texas. Josh Sapiro is an interesting guy. So when I was at the Department of Justice, he actually joined for one of our press conferences Mm-hmm. Um, about a you know a case that had been worked out of the Pennsylvania field office, but you know to have a Democratic AG show up in a Jeff Sessions administration press conference, mm. um, he has he has been a very moderate, interesting guy in Pennsylvania with a pretty big reputation, and then I think he's oddly moved more to the left as a gubernatorial candidate, which is a little unusual, but. He's a very good candidate is part of this. And I think nationally, he's not getting a whole lot of attention for like, he's been working on this for years. <laughs> yeah. If I'm not mistaken, it, it looks like the Republicans will hold the state legislature and Shapiro, very ambitious guy. I was talking to some operatives from Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago, and they're actually, there were Republicans who mo- mostly focus on the state house issues in Pennsylvania and they said they're somewhat optimistic that they he, they might actually get him to play ball on things like school choice or some more reasonable reforms where he might try to position himself as more of a moderate, more palpable. That usually doesn't happen. You seem to be shaking your head. You know, you might not agree. Well, if a Democratic governor is going to uh, extend some sort of bipartisan olive branch to Republicans anywhere in the country, probably it's not going to be on school choice, but it's certainly not going to be on school choice in Pennsylvania where you've got really, really powerful uh, teachers' organizations in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. That's true. Well, that would be interesting to see how it, how it plays out. Uh, we, I mean, Barack Obama, asking. when he was running in 2008, gave a speech to some Wall Street guys in New York where he said, you know, I'm so frustrated with the education apparatus that I'm, you know, this close to coming out for school choice. And then not another word was heard about it for the rest <laughs> of it. And that's how it is. Yeah, and it's certainly... Uh, I'm worried about Ukraine because Randy Weingarten is there and... I think it's going to set back Ukrainian school choice for a decade. Yeah. That's a, that's a different dispatch live topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, maybe we can uh, do some, uh, to, to borrow a phrase, rank punditry. Uh, we are four weeks out exactly today, and we may not know on Wednesday who controls the Senate. You know, if it, uh, if it goes to January in Georgia, if Warnock or or Herschel Walker are incapable of getting above 50%. It could be a wait like it was two years ago. But um, right now, there were, uh, I think we'd, we'd written about this, people had said it, there were vibe shifts, right? It was clear the Republicans were crushing it, and then a lot of bad candidates got through on the Senate side, and maybe they didn't look so competitive, and now Oz is coming back up. Colorado is suddenly becoming interesting, right? And then you have all these other, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical, but then the national media is very excited about the possibility that Mike Lee could lose in Utah. 
I, I remain skeptical, uh, deeply skeptical of that. But there's so many different moving parts, and we're still a month out. But what the hell? Rank punditry. <laughs> what do you guys think? Who's going to win the Senate? Will it be 50 50? Uh, why don't we just do a do a roundtable, Jonah? What about you? What are your thoughts on where? It's yeah, I. Every time I play with the map thing, Republicans take the Senate, even though there are times where the vibe seems really bad for the Republicans. And I think it is abundantly clear that, like, there's no such thing as an actual human being called generic Republican. But in all the races where Republicans might, where they're on the bubble of losing or winning, um, if they had generic Republicans running, they'd be in better shape. Mm -hmm. And certainly if Herschel Walker were, I don't, you know, vanilla is probably loaded in this context. So a generic Republican candidate running in Georgia would crush Raphael Warnock. Um, I think uh, McCormick in Pennsylvania, who is kind of like a generic ish Republican with, you know, with a little Ted Cruz sprinkled on top, uh, would be doing better than Oz. Same thing with Blake Masters in Arizona. And so if I could put on my sort of opinion guy hat, along with the sort of rank budget hat, I would like to see the most of the embarrassing Republican candidates lose. Um, and as possible, um, without taking a position about what would be better about Republicans or Democrats taking over the Senate, I do think that gridlock is preferable to anything. Hmm. Uh, what about you, Sarah? Um, so I think there's two scenarios, right? We I've talked about this before of how maybe think of this election less as a red wave and more as two cross currents, and we'll just see which tide is coming in on election day. And we can't know that right now. But I think there's a world in which um, Ohio and Wisconsin are blowouts for Republicans. It's not close. And that Adam Laxalt in Nevada, you know, wins by two, which against an incumbent would be a blowout of its own sort in a state like Nevada. And that Herschel Walker wins. Um, and then Pennsylvania is a little harder for me to, to figure out, but regardless, Republicans take the Senate at that point. Um, and then I think there's a world where, uh, I do think Ron Johnson pulls out Wisconsin regardless. I think that JD Vance probably pulls out Ohio regardless, but that those are three point races. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that case, yeah, I think you're looking at a 50, 50 Senate, maybe, maybe even the possibility that, um, you know, between North Carolina and Pennsylvania, that Republicans lose one of those and don't pick up Georgia, in which case Democrats actually have a, a net plus one, makes it a 51 Senate. Okay. So Vice President Harris doesn't have to break any ties, but like, don't worry, Jonah, there's plenty of gridlock. It's mansion and cinema now instead of just mansion blocking stuff. And Kevin? Yeah, um, I was, if I'm remembering the, the polling averages I saw this afternoon correctly, the only races that are sort of under 2% are 
Ohio and North Carolina, where you got sort of 1.5 and 1.7 point leads for the Republican candidates. If we assume the Republicans slightly overperform their polls, as they often do, um, then it looks like um, those races will come out that way. Uh, Laxal in uh, Nevada is kind of interesting. Nevada is a weird state. It's sort of upside down Kansas, where Kansas is very Republican, but not all that conservative. And Nevada is much more conservative than you expect it to be, but not super Republican. And that may be uh, shifting in some ways. Nevada may be getting an even bigger dose of the California effect than than Texas is, where um, you know people in Texas worry about all these Californians moving here. But the median Californian moving to Texas, Texas is slightly more Republican than the median Texan, uh, because that's why they're leaving California, because they're unhappy there. And Nevada, of course, has caught a lot more of those folks than uh, than Texas has. So um, I would guess if I were really rolling the dice, um, it could be anything from 51 Republican to 51 Democrat. Well, we've By the got way, it. Nevada running campaigns in Nevada is super weird because there's only two population centers. There's really not a whole lot of rural Nevada out there with people in it. It's yep. really all um, Reno and Vegas. And uh, it, so it's a, just a fascinating state. Very blue collar. The Latino vote there is fascinating. It doesn't look like the Latino vote uh, in a bunch of other states. Totally unique. Um, so I think it's part of the reason why they're actually... Nevada's flown under the radar a lot this cycle is because you really need like a John Ralston, this like on the ground Nevada reporter who knows and understands the politics of the state, because a lot of these reporters who can talk very fluently about uh, the collar counties in Pennsylvania and the wow counties in Wisconsin, when it comes to Nevada, they're like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like Alaska in that way, you know, it's like a lot vast rural areas but not a lot of population in them. And, and so you get these weird organizations, institutions, coalitions, interest groups that have outsized power. Like, you know, the, 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 the service unions in Vegas. Culinary. Are, the culinary unions, that's right. They're just wildly powerful, right? And the same thing with like Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. She, she wins re-election often because of the native corporations um that pull ever you know that 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 coalesce as a coalition it's just not the kind of, it's not normal politics in a handful of states it'd be, be a good piece for us to do of like states with not normal politics yeah. oh we're we're coming to the end of our our time here on dispatch live but let's do one real quick last question and just a, a quick answer for it about abnormal politics uh, what's the one race that's going to surprise or the one that people are like, whoa, that was a lot closer than I thought, or, oh, I can't believe that guy won. For me, I think it's going to be Patty Murray in Washington. And I'm not saying she's going to lose, but I think it's going to be a lot closer than people expect. Uh, what do you guys I like think? it? Sort of like uh, Sherrod Brown in 2018, barely eking out a win uh, against a, a lousy Republican candidate. Um, I think that's surprising. That's what I think we'll see in Washington. But what's a what's a race out there uh, you think might surprise people on November 9th or 10th or whenever we get the, the, the votes in? I am totally open to being proven wrong about this, but you require me to answer this question. Uh, I will not be shocked if Tim Ryan wins Ohio. Um, and I certainly won't be shocked if it's a lot closer than it should be given that it's Ohio. 
I'll take the reverse in Wisconsin. Ron Johnson was left for dead in 2016. I mean, people pulled out all the money. They weren't going to waste any. Um, and then Ron Johnson comes back to life with a vengeance in the Senate. And this time around, as of August, left for dead. He's seven points behind. Um, I think we could see the same thing where Ron Johnson massively overperforms. And that is not a particularly close race in Wisconsin. And Kevin, I guess you're going to pick Beto to win it all in Texas. You know, I was just thinking I live in a, a super, super progressive neighborhood. And just judging by the lawn signs here, you would expect Beto to win by like some Saddam Hussein margin. And there are going to be a lot of people in this neighborhood that are really uh, disappointed. So my my kind of running thing on him is my, my interest in whether he's going to clear 40%. And um, it looks like he will from the polls right now, but it's 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 likely I think that he'll underperform some. You know, I guess Wendy Davis only got to it was thirty four percent, something like that. So um, you know, that's better. We'll get to declare the moral victory if he's at you know forty three percent or uh, better, and um, so that will uh, be something to watch. Although I I mean I don't expect to be surprised. That's the nature of surprises. You don't expect them. But irrespective of who wins in Pennsylvania, it's going to be really extraordinary that either Dr. Oz or John Fetterman's in the U.S. Senate. Hey, on the Beto thing, I wonder, I think that's a race that you can't possibly guess the margin for another couple of weeks, because I think if Beto keeps losing by a lot, you get mm -hmm. sort of that protest vote of people, you know, who frankly do not want Beto to be governor, but also want to send a message to Greg Abbott type thing. So if as the race sort of gets further apart, you could actually see Beto doing better um, than if people think the race sort of in that Wendy Davis way where people thought Wendy Davis might actually pull that out and it ends up being a landslide the other way. Yeah, I think that um, there's a, a lot of people on the sort of these angry, bitter, disappointed Democrats in Texas um, who really think that people should dislike Greg Abbott. Um, they just don't understand that people don't. I think that, um, you know, Abbott is not super popular, kind of the way George W. Bush was. He's not, I think, a beloved figure, but people seem reasonably satisfied with him. And uh, Beto is kind of uh, not someone who comes off as a particularly serious figure, I think, um, even among people who are maybe open to a Democratic uh, candidate. He's just not not going to be the one. Your, so your reach is Beto below 40 percent. Well, I don't think I'd be super surprised by it, but um, but yeah, that'll be my that'll be my interesting unexpected outcome if he doesn't clear forty percent. By the way, similar dynamic or similar interesting dynamic in Georgia in that governor's race. I think you could see Stacey Abrams really underperform where the polls say she is. Yeah, pretty tough for an incumbent to to lose re-election like that, but I guess Stacey might throw it away. Um, I, <laughs> it would take a heart of stone not to laugh. <laughs> That's what I said to my fiance, but she disagreed. And so I'm glad, I'm glad someone thinks I'm funny and it's you guys. All right. Well, I think this is it for Dispatch Live. Uh, thanks for joining us to our members and also for you three uh, for tolerating my moderation for the past hour. Um, and uh, we'll uh, see you guys next week. All right. Um, I can't understand.